Well, good morning, everyone. As you know, this fall we have been looking at the life of the Apostle Peter, which is to say uh, we have been watching how the steadfast love of Jesus changes a fisherman named Simon into the rock on which Jesus builds his church. We've been watching to see how the love of Jesus gives Peter a new vocation, reshapes his identity, and makes his life into something utterly beyond him for the good of the world. And so it is a hopeful story, because seeing Jesus with Peter gives us a good picture of what Jesus' love might make of people like us too. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. It's also printed in your order of worship. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and he prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would, you would show us the steadfast love of Jesus which has the power to transform a fisherman named Simon into the Apostle Peter and Saul the persecutor into the Apostle Paul. And we ask that Jesus' love would transform us in all the areas we need and that he would reshape our identity and make us into a people who look and love like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, I was having lunch with a good friend at Cafe Robay, which is just south of the church in Wicker Park. And we were sitting at a little corner table, and my chair was facing the window. In the middle of our conversation, out of the corner of my eye, I see a man walking by the restaurant, and he does a double take. So I look over to see this guy who's wearing a white shirt and a black blazer. And he's looking at me curiously as if he knows me. We lock eyes and he says, he asks me something through the glass that I understand, but I cannot hear him. And he mouths, are you Jewish? And instantly, without even thinking, I mouth back, I'm 2%. (laughs) He pauses, nods, gives me a thumbs up, and then he continues on his way. 
Now, I'm curious about what percentage would have uh, brought this man into the restaurant to actually sit with us and eat. Obviously, 2% was not enough for him. Now, my friend who was sitting with his back to the window is like, what just happened? Because all he witnessed was me saying, I'm 2%. Now, more strange than this man's question was the fact that I knew exactly what this man was asking, and I was ready with an answer. And the reason I was ready was because a year and a half ago, I did one of those DNA ancestry tests. And the app reminds me pretty frequently uh, when the data gets updated. And I have to admit, I love the precision of knowing the percentage of my background. I have started to self-identify as 29% Scandinavian. Like, oh yeah, that explains why I love watching Viking shows. Now, I think one of the reasons these tests are so popular is because they help us answer, at least in one dimension, the human question, who am I? Who am I? Because at the core of our humanity is the need to figure out our identity and where we fit in the world. Now, in the Gospels, the question of identity shows up all over the place. We see Jesus ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And it's Simon's clarity in answering, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that leads Jesus to rename him Peter, the rock on which he builds his church. And yet, throughout Jesus' last week, we see Peter wrestling to make sense of what it means to be the rock. And we see Peter struggle to make sense of who he is at his core. So to set the scene, our our passage takes place just after Jesus and his disciples celebrate the Passover, which is their last meal together before Jesus' death. And after eating, Jesus and his disciples walk out to a large olive grove on a hill, and Jesus tells his disciples that they will all desert him when he is killed, but after he is raised, that they they are to come to meet him in Galilee. And of course, all of the disciples dislike this gloomy kind of talk from Jesus. They are still expecting some kind of uh, earthly victory from Jesus. But even so, they protest that they will never abandon Jesus no matter what. And Peter responds, even if those other guys fall away, I will not. And Jesus is like, no, really. Before this night is over, like in the next six to eight hours before the rooster crows, you will deny knowing me three times. In other words, Peter, your integrity will not be able to withstand the test that is coming. But Peter is not having it, and he insists, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Now, despite what Jesus has told him, Peter remains committed to, this, to his identity as the one who is faithful to the very end. Now Mark intends for this dissonance to be ringing in our ears as we enter into our passage this morning. So as we just read, Jesus leaves most of the disciples behind and he walks deeper into the grove with just three of his closest friends. Peter, James, and John. And once they're in private, 
Jesus' anxiety and dread begins to show up on his face and his body. Jesus tells them, I am so overwhelmed with horror that I feel like I am dying. And we read that three times he asks his friends to stay with him and to keep watch. Now Mark, in this moment, is emphasizing Jesus' humanity in a way that we and the disciples have not seen before. And it's not just that Jesus is is anticipating his death that has so wrecked him. Mark makes it clear that his dread is in anticipation of facing the cup. Three different times Jesus asks, Abba, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now the cup is the Old Testament metaphor for divine justice and judgment. It is the wrath of God being poured out against all the evil that has been ever committed in the world. And Jesus here is standing on the very edge of a cliff looking down into darkness. And the one who from all eternity shared intimacy and delight and joy and union with his Father whose existence, whose very essence is defined within perfect relationship, is anticipating being cut off. For the first time in all eternity, God the Son will be utterly alone. The one who is the source of light and life is going to be swallowed up by darkness and death. It's the hell of isolation and the suffocation of being forsaken that undoes Jesus in this moment. And it's in response to this reality that is awaiting him that Jesus throws himself on the ground in agony and he prays for deliverance. In Luke's account, Luke the physician says that Jesus in his anxiety was sweating drops like blood. And not only do we see Jesus' humanity in his vulnerability, but we also see Jesus' humanity in the longing for his friends to bear witness to his grief and to be with him in it. The man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like us, longs for his friends to show up, not just physically, but to bring their presence The solidarity that that Peter staked his life on just a couple of hours earlier. Jesus doesn't need Peter to die for him. But he does ask Peter to be with him. And so this is the moment. This is the first opportunity that Peter has to live into his identity that he has just proclaimed. I will be the faithful one. It is game time. And yet, we see that Peter can't stay awake to be with Jesus. And truly, the hard stuff hasn't even happened yet. And still, Peter doesn't fail once or twice, but three times. A prelude to his three denials that will come later that night. The pressure of Jesus' agony reveals the huge gap between Peter's self-image and his character. It's the difference between intention and action. 
Now, did you notice how the disciples respond when Jesus confronts them about sleeping? Mark writes in verse 40, they did not know what to say. Now, just think about that for a second. When has Peter ever not had something to say? In other stories, Peter is the first one to speak up, often foolishly. He's the first to offer his take on the situation. But here, Peter is speechless. He had so convinced himself that he would be the hero that when he fails in such a simple way, he seems to have a hard time even processing it. Church, Peter, Peter's falling asleep is not just a failure of behavior. It is a failure of character. What he says and what he does aren't matching up. They are incompatible. And to be clear, it, this is not malicious. This is not evil at work. It's not like he's saying, surely I'll stay awake, and then saying, ha ha, fooled you, Jesus, behind his back. No, I I believe that Peter really wants to love Jesus well. And yet Peter is not going to be the guy who shows up with consistency in sickness and in health and in good times and bad. He does not have it in him. Or as Jesus said, the Spirit is willing to, and the flesh is weak. Now, I hope it's crystal clear why Mark is highlighting this moment for us. It's because we're meant to recognize ourselves in Peter. You know, like Peter, we often imagine that we are the hero in the story of our relationships. We want to be the hero. But when push comes to shove, it turns out that we are not faithful in the way that we know we ought to be. I mean, just take a moment to think about your life. If we actually take the time to think about all the moments that we have failed to follow through on our promise, all the things that we say we will do for people and don't do, all the resolutions that we make to ourselves to be better and don't keep, We have to admit that before we ever deceive others, we deceive ourselves. And probably we can't even remember a tenth of the times that we have failed in integrity like this because it is just too painful and we have to repress it. And think about how committed most of us are to the identity that we have built. And like Peter, when someone challenges who we say we are, we will do almost anything to avoid seeing the gap. So let me give you an example. I tend to pride myself on being orderly, conscientious, and aware of my environment. One evening I was getting something out of the medicine cabinet in the bathroom and down toppled a glass container of nail polish. It was like in slow motion. It It bounced off the counter, onto the floor, and it exploded like a nuclear bomb of dark purple all over every surface of our bathroom. And immediately, immediately, 
I had the compulsion inside me to find someone to blame. Why? Because I am not a person who has accidents. I'm not a person who has accidents, so it has to be someone else's fault for owning the nail polish, for putting it up in the cabinet in the first place, for distracting me as I was getting something out of the cabinet. I don't know, maybe the nail polish jumped out and assaulted me of its own will. But it took me hours before I could admit that it was just a random, unfortunate accident. Here's my point. Our commitments to these identities, these narratives that we construct about our own absolute goodness, they are harmful. They are harmful. They, they, they keep us bound to self-deception rather than being able to see an invitation to grow and to change. They alienate, alienate us from other people. And church, we are willing, we are willing to go to war with the people that we say we love over them. And like for Peter, it sometimes takes a dramatic, heartbreaking failure to get us to admit that we have a gap. But here's the good news this morning. It's when we finally acknowledge the gap between who we are and who we desire to be that Jesus meets us. As Jesus said earlier in Mark, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so all of us, all of us are unfaithful, starting with the preacher. All of us are sick. But the only ones who come for healing are the ones who know they need a doctor. So how does Jesus respond to Peter's infidelity? He doesn't say, I am done with you jokers because you can't even do one simple thing that I ask of you. He doesn't say, get out of here. Depart from me. No, instead, Jesus demonstrates his faithfulness. Jesus, in the moment of his abandonment, doesn't abandon them. And church, he doesn't abandon us either. Jesus says, get up and come with me. The hour has come. And this is Jesus saying, you are not who you say you are, Peter. Not yet, but I am who I say I am. Jesus has compassion on Peter because he sees who Peter is meant to be, who the Spirit is going to transform him to be, and at the same time, he also sees the one who puts his foot in his mouth and often fails to keep his promise. Jesus is able to hold complexity. He can hold both our unfaithfulness and the glory of the image that we bear at the same time. Jesus says, Simon, you are going to betray me. And Peter, I am going to build my, my, my church on you. And church, Jesus holds complex, complexity for us as well. 
Jesus doesn't build his church on Peter's resume of steadfastness. He builds it on Peter's confession of Jesus' steadfastness. It is because of Jesus that Peter becomes the rock. And so like Peter, we grow in faithfulness and integrity, not through our good intentions, but because we immerse ourselves in Jesus' faithfulness and integrity. We allow it to wash over us. And as I mentioned in the beginning, at the core of our humanity is the need to figure out our identity and where we fit in the world. And to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, fashioning our own identity is something of a fool's errand. The identity that we create for ourselves often turns out to be sticks and straws. But when we go looking for Jesus and we find him and our truest self is thrown in. Our identity in Jesus has a firm foundation and it rests on the fact that Jesus actually truly loves you. He loves you and he delights in you. Amen and amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we rest in your steadfast love for us. We believe yet help our unbelief. Give us the courage to step into our identity as your beloved daughters and sons with growing faithfulness and integrity. May you do this for us and for this broken world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.